Welcome to the podcast of River City Community Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.rivercitychicago.com. stronger, higher than any other. Amen? Amen. Amen. Come on, church. All right. All right, well, I am excited to share with you all today uh, from the book of Acts. Uh, I've, been, I've been actually enjoying this series, learning so much um, from the various speakers that have come up and shared. Uh, uh, Dr. Norling uh, last week did something that catalyzed my thinking. If you haven't heard the podcast last, from last week, you, you got to check it out. You got to check out the, um, the podcast from last week. It was it was very informative. It, it, it took us to an exploration of the triune God. And as you know, if we, as we explore the character of God, we reveal more of ourselves and more of what the church is called to be. So you can check this out. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful sermon, um, at least for me. It like started stirring up some things in me and actually started me to start to think through what I was going to teach today. Uh, one of the things I, like, uh, I remember uh, growing up and why the book of Acts has always been one of my favorites was that there was a series and a time when... Um, when, when there was like when, when disgruntled associate pastors and scholars and all these folks would, would, would use this terminology or use the book of Acts as a mechanism of saying how impotent the church was and how irrelevant it was. And they would say that like the church didn't have the power that it once had. It didn't have the impact to, to, to reach young folks like it used to. It didn't have the impact to cause change in the world like, like you would expect it to. And so they would say that the church is impotent. The church is the church is lacking relevancy, and so we need to go back to that place when the church once had power and influence in the world, and they would say we need to become an Acts 2 church. You guys remember that? When the church would always say there was this rhetoric around, like, we need to become an Acts 2 church. We need to, to push as hard as we can to have this generosity that, that, that lifts the needs of others above our own, that we need to, to love so unconditionally that all will be welcome. We have this radical inclusivity, that we need to go back to being an Acts 2 church. And, of course, like all fads, it eventually faded, and the rhetoric is no more. No one really says that anymore. You never hear anyone say Acts 2 Church, right? Like, we want to be Acts 2 Church. While the rhetoric has changed, I think I can affirm that most churches, if you were to ask them what does success look like for them, they would articulate something that's just seen in Acts 2. They would articulate the church that we've been visiting through the book of Acts. They would say that success as a community and as a church is to look something like the folks that we see in Acts 2 and the folks that we'll see in this particular um, verse that I'm going to cover. And I think the, the, um, the chapter that I'm covering is going to reveal something about what made that church so significant, what made that church so powerful, and also reveal to what, what it would take for us to, to rekindle that level of impact and, um, and influence in the world. So if you will stand with me, we're going to be reading from the book of Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through chapter 5, 16. Um, I'm at the wrong spot. I'll tell y'all to stand with me. All right. Here we go. 432 goes a little something like this. It says, all the believers were um, one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, 
and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. I'm sorry. For from time to time, those who own land, that's a key phrase, or houses sold them, brought the money uh, from the sales, and put them put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, uh, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and, and, and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, remember what Dr. Norling said, that this, this would have been just a straight run on. It, the chapter 5 wouldn't have, wouldn't have delineated this conversation. Now, a man named uh, Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife, full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said to Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept, it, kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money yours at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have, a, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias had heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard uh, what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped his body up, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the, for the land? Yes, she said, this is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and land, came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about this, uh, these events. Now the apostles performed many signs and wonders among them, the, the people, and all the um, believers used to meet together in Solomon's um, colonnade. No one else dared to join them, even though they, they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed that the Lord believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them in their beds uh, and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on them uh, as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. This is the word of God. You may have a seat. Let me pray for us real quick. Blessed Father, um, fill us with your word today, Lord. May we have a clean understanding of what you want for us, Lord. May nothing impure in us prohibit um, your word from speaking to us, Lord. Um, all the things that serve as distraction for us, Lord, let us set it down for this moment to hear you speak, to hear you teach us, Lord, and expose to us what you've called your church to be. So, dear God, um, lead us in this. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. 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 All right. So, this is timely that... We talk about budget updates, and now I got to do an update about. Uh, <laughs> now I got to talk about Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, that was not intentional, by the way. <laughs> uh, so, this is what's happening. Uh, when, when I when I read this text, uh, when he, this is the first um, negative event that happened inside the church, according to if you look at Acts from the beginning of Acts down. This is the one event. So they had a lot of outside things that were negative that were happening, but there was no really like any communication or any written down like. Um, internal strife going on within the body and this is the first account of some internal strife happening within the body and so it feels like man like 
if you, if you read the Acts 2 church and you're a church person like myself growing up in a church and stuff like that, they, they remind you like a newlywed couple, you know? Newlywed couples are like all like doting on each other and, and all cutesy and they care about each other's feelings and they, they think about each other and they put their other, the needs of, uh, of others before themselves and they're always like in each other's face. How much that? No, I love you. No, I love you. I love you. Back and forth like that, you know? And if you're married for some time, you're a seasoned married person, you look at that and you're like, ugh. They don't know no better. They don't know better. Just wait a little bit. Give them some time, you know? And you kind of secretly hate on them, you know? You like, you, you secretly like, man, like, just wait till reality hit them. And, you know, and so when you read Acts 2 as a church person, you look at it like they look like this newlywed, like, couple that, like, that just got it right. And they just love each other. And they're generous. And they're polite. And they care about each other and stuff. And it's like, you're like, man, you don't know church. You ain't did church yet. Wait a while, you know? And, um, and so you kind of, like, look forward to <laughs> Seeing something like, ah, there's a chink in the armor, you know? Um, and I, I say that tongue-in-cheek. Um, I, I think that this is important for us because this is the first event that happens, and it feels pretty, pretty drastic. So here it is. Ananias sees Barnabas do this amazing thing. Barnabas sells his land, takes the proceeds, lays it at the, uh, at the apostles' feet, and the assumption is that it was all good. Of course, um, Barnabas probably got some affirmation for it, right? Some acclaim, some like, so like, what? Well, good job, I mean, which, which would be warranted given the, the nature of the generosity, which we would do in our body, right? We would say, like, good job, thank you for contributing this way to the greater good of the community. And no one would be upset that they were getting affirmed in this. I think, and then you see Ananias see this, and immediately after that, he goes and does the exact same thing. So he goes and sells his land in search of that same acclaim. And so then Peter comes to him. He's like, dude, you didn't even have to sell your land. That's not even a prerequisite. You could do what you want with it. You could have built condos on it, as far as I care. Like, it doesn't matter what you do with that land. It wasn't up to, like, the church didn't mandate. Because you've seen the scriptures, it says from time to time. It wasn't something that you had to do. It wasn't, it wasn't, a, it wasn't mandatory that you gave everything you had. But he came in, and he, he tried to front like he, would, like, he, like he was doing exactly what Barnabas did. He, he, was, he, was, he was fronting. So turn to your neighbor and say, ain't no future in you fronting. <laughs> there ain't no future in you fronting. There, there's, there's absolutely no future in it. And so and, um, Ananias goes and does this, and what he does is he positions the church in a, in a unique way. He does something to the church that I think um, that we, we miss a lot of times, is that Ananias turned something that was done out of love, out of dynamic love, and turned it into a religious fa- uh, function. So what he did was he was going to um, operate almost like a Pharisee. He was going to lift the burden of selling your land and giving everything you own, project that image onto the community, but not actually do it. And so if we remember in scriptures, Jesus would say, like, you could woe to you Pharisees, for you load the backs on the burdens of people but you, that you yourselves are unwilling to lift. And that's exactly what Ananias was doing. That's exactly what he was doing. He had made something that was dynamic and interactive with, in terms of love, in terms of the spirit, in terms of God, and, and made it a religious overture. He made it a religious overture. And what he did by copying um, um, Barnabas directly afterwards was that he mandated as this, as practice of what it means to be a generous person within this community. So he created a hierarchy that wasn't there. And there were people that could not live up to that standard. There was no way. Pe- not everyone had land to sell. And not everyone could afford to sell everything they had and give it to the community in that way. 
And so you say, like, oh, I can see the dangers in this, that he's, this is the yeast of the Pharisees that Jesus talks about in Matthew 14, when he talks about that, uh, uh, Matthew 15. And, uh, and, and um, he goes on to say to him, he says, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. The teachings are merely human rules. So what he did is that he, can, he took a, a, a spirit-led action and made it a human rule which blasphemes the work, right? And so God, God takes his life. Now, I think that's a little extreme. <laughs> it, it, feels like, it feels like to me, like, like some spiritual, like, you know, extortion almost, right? Like God is, Jesus, Peter's sitting there like, look, man, give me all your money or you're going to be sleeping with the fishes. He essentially, it, it, was, it seems like, like a shakedown of some sort. Like, if we let everybody know this is how we roll, then everybody in the congregation is going to know, like, look, I got to give it all I got. <laughs> you know? I can imagine people starting to empty their pockets right there on the spot, like, pulling stuff out, just throwing things on the floor. That's everything. <laughs> you know? But, but that's, the, that, that's what it feels like. But I think, I, think it's, I, think it's, I think it's more than that. I think it's more than that. Um, and, I, and I think to understand the, the, the depths of what was going on, we need to know who these people were. All right. All right. And I read that long old uh, part of the chapter. And I know most people are like, man, can't you just read like the part where he dies or something? But like we're standing up here for 45 minutes. But like I read that I read that long part of the chapter largely because I wanted you to see where these people were, where, the location of where they were. Um, they were at on Solomon's um, colonnade, which was like basically Solomon's porch. And the, the, the importance of that location is that that was the east side of the temple wall. And the east side of the temple wall was also known as the woman's court. It's the court where the women would gather. That same part of the court adjacent to that would be the Gentile court. All right? This is important because directly to the east of it, facing the center of the, 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 where the temple court was, was the, the, the edifice where, where the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the spiritual elites sat. It was basically the city center. And so they were on the east side facing the city center, congregating with those that would represent the margins. Because women weren't allowed into that part of the temple. The Gentiles weren't allowed into that part of the temple. Jesus' disciples proximated themselves at the margins of the, of the temple wall. They placed themselves at the margins of the temple wall in the face of the status quo. They were, they were protesting by their very love for one another. They were pushing back against the system by their generosity. They were calling the Pharisees to account by their love for one another. And so this is where they were. And so here we go. We get a man that's 100 feet away from the actual Pharisees coming into their church, their space, where the marginal live, where the marginal congregate, where, where they come to meet God. And this man comes and brings heresy into that space. He brings a superficial sacrifice. He brings religious gestures, empty religious gestures into a space occupied by the margins. And so God says, no, no, you can't do that. If we read further in Acts, you can see why God had to end that. Because directly after we read through this line, we see that the apostles are persecuted, that they are, that are placed in jail, 
that many of them are stoned. A lot of them martyred and murdered. And what God is saying through this is that there is no place for superficial sacrifices for the ecology of the kingdom of heaven. That there is no place for religious gestures in the ecology for the kingdom of heaven. That what lies before us requires a genuine love. What lies before us is a genuine commitment, requires a genuine commitment. For what lies before us requires genuine unity. That there is no religious gesture that will have you, that has any sustaining power in the face of death. There is no religious gesture that will cause you to push back against systems that will take your life, your well-being, that will threaten your very existence. There's no religious gestures, no, 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 no religious overtures that equips you for the war that was to come. And as God was laying his infrastructure for the kingdom of heaven here on earth, the very church that he was building, the very first church that he was building, he could not allot for, he could not allow, he could not allow this level of discord in the body. It would be akin to a lion without teeth or claws. It looks like a lion. It sounds like a lion, but it doesn't function like one. And many of us know that sometimes we, we look like a church, oftentimes sound like a church, but the question is, do we function like one? And that was the standard that God was holding them to. And this is the reason why Ananias had to, had to pass. Because for the most part, what typically happens when people don't, um, don't share their wealth, um, historians say that usually just miss out on a quarter of a meal. You know, like typically what you would do is you withhold a quarter of the communal meal from them. And then they would, they would just go on their merry way and eventually get forgiven and allowed to eat again. But here God took his life because what he represented was a threat to the very existence of the church. And earlier I said that this says something to us as River City. That this communicates something to us. We intentionally moved ourselves in the neighborhood because we wanted to find ourselves proximate to those who occupy the margin, right? We intentionally placed ourselves at the intersection of race and poverty because we, 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 we believe that's what God has called us to. We do so knowing what lies before us. And what lies before us is, it has to be more than religious gestures. What lies before us requires more of us than platitudes. The battles that we face, the demons, the gates of hells that we stand up against requires more of us than simple um, agreeing to some philosophy. God is calling the church to not look like the church or act like the church or talk like the church, but to function like it. And what that looks like in our, in our particular context, when we engage in conversations of gender inequality or, or conversations around um, white supremacy and, and, uh, and, and the racial divide in our, in our nation, when we engage in those conversations, what it looks like to, to, 
to be in genuine relationship and community with one another is to stay at the table. That's when you know whether or not the platitudes and the, the religious gestures are what's the foundation for your reason of being here, right? It is, it is when we are tested. When comfort comes calling with its luring song, right? When power demands that we seek it out. That is when, that is when we realize what was the foundation of our faith. What is the reason why we are being here? And I say this not as a threat or, or, or to push people into ways that they don't want to go. I say this because I believe in everything inside of me. We are headed in a direction as a community where religious platitudes will lead to our end. When simple gestures aren't enough. I hear daily and weekly of young folks passing. There is no religious gesture that navigates that. I hear people losing their family members daily. People who struggle with their own self-worth daily. People under the foot of poverty created by systemic uh, realities that, that, that stymie so many of our family members out here. Daily, I'm hearing the stories and the narratives and the pain that comes from that and the residual effects that, that, that become cyclical in our community, right here, right now. It's not enough to say the right thing. It's not enough to be quote unquote woke. Our faith is being tested in this very moment. And so we look at the church, the Acts 2 church that we were so jealous of, because I'm jealous of them. Um, and I look at them and, and I say, what is that thing that, that, that allowed them to live so fearlessly, that allowed them to commit so hard that the fact that they were, they were in jail and they were sitting there celebrating and dancing and talking about, we in jail, y'all. They go kill us. And they're excited. They're celebrating. What is it in these people that would celebrate dying for something? What is it that's in these people that would say, like, this, it's, it's, it's cool to be locked up? And I realized that they were being led by people who witnessed their Messiah hung up on a tree. They witnessed their Messiah be rolled into a cave. They witnessed that tomb being open and it being empty. They witnessed the resurrection of their God. And then they experienced the spirit of God descending on them. Changing their very physical nature. Renewing their minds. Causing them to see the world differently. They had an ecological change. Their ecosystem changed. Their values changed. They were different. Values were shifted. And so when you live with that reality, there is something about dying for it that feels wonderful. Because we understand that death is not the end. 
that is the promise of life afterwards, that on the other side of death is resurrection. That on the other side of that cross is resurrection. And a renewal of this world. On the other side of the cross, there was this, this beautiful resurrection. And they saw it, and they witnessed it, and there was no way they wouldn't die for it. There was no way they wouldn't die for it. And as we wrestle with this concept, like, what are we willing to die for? I see a man get held up, man. He's wrestling for his wallet. Dude got a gun. What are you willing to die for? And it's uncomfortable for to come to a space on Sunday mornings and someone saying, you got to be willing to die for this. But the reality is you do. You just do. So in light of that church and what we're called to be, the question I leave us with, the the thing that I want us to to pontificate or even just, just meditate on if we can, the thing I would ask us to hold Are we willing to die for this? Are we satisfied with religious overtures and gestures? I came on Sunday, so I met my quota. I did that spiritual thing. I said hi to a couple of people I didn't know. Some of them were black. I get extra points for that. Do we, do we, do we, do we, do we, do we, do we satisfy ourselves with that? Are we satiated with that? Or do we want to see legitimate change? Do we want to experience legitimate change, real change? Can we imagine a space where our generosity exceeds that of the the apostles? Can we dream together of a space where our our, our goods and our services are, are, are used for the building of the kingdom? That what I have is yours because you are mine and I'm yours. Can we dream of a world like that? Can we dream of a place where where we are such a trusted community that I can go and say out loud, I'm struggling. Help me, brother. Without condemnation or judgment. Without submitting to a caste system of some sort. Can we dream of a place like that? And if we can't dream of a place like that, can we work to build it? Can we put the hard work in to build it? That is my challenge for us. That, that is what, what I believe we're called to do. Yeah, God was, God was aggressive with Ananias. I'll say that. He was a little aggressive there. But I think it points out the significance of what's happening. It points out the importance of what we're called to do, how we're called to live, who we're called to be as the church. And then and then, and only then, when we rid ourselves of this mantle of impotence, this mantle of irrelevance, is because what starts to happen when, you know, that's the strangest thing in that book to me, is that somebody died in a church and then more people came. And literally, they said their God killed them. So in my mind, I'm like, man, um, that should decrease numbers a little bit, right? All those present probably wasn't present the next week, <laughs> you know. But for some reason, more people start to come. And even people that didn't want to come because they were like, no, that's too serious for me, they respected it. 
They respected it because their genuine relationship was enough to draw them there. It's because it was a community built in a way to meet our human needs, our real human needs, to be who we were meant to be. And the people were drawn to that, regardless of the threat of life, regardless of the fact that they represented the margins, regardless of their lack of power within a social standing. They were drawn to that because they knew that was where real life was. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Blessed Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, That you would take us us liars, us selfish people, us broken people, and that you would build your, your kingdom on us, Lord. That you allow us to serve as the infrastructure of your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I pray that we move into a space, into a place, Lord, where we understand the depths of this stewardship you called us to. That we move to a place where we understand the degree to which we must surrender ourselves so that we may experience all of you. Dear God, in the spaces where we become pharisaical, Lord, where we make mandatory sacrifices that were optional, that we replace acts of genuine love with religious overtures, Lord, where we make doctrine out of human rules. Dear God, may we give you obedience instead of sacrifice. And out of that obedience, Lord, may we love our neighbor more than we love ourselves. Out of that obedience, may we count every blessing that we have as yours. Out of that obedience, Lord, may our resources, our time, our energy, our thoughts, our words, our love, our hopes, our dreams be dedicated to the community of God. May we give ourselves fully to one another, fully to you. And may your love prepare us for what lies before us, Lord. And may your spirit give us courage. And may we rejoice someday at the sight of dining on your behalf. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Bread.